0: Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: the trinity radio i'm john the pritchett and we have got the biblical rogues gallery with us tonight come on come on yeah back again to talk about the book of romans and some other stuff and we've got quite the wretched hive of scum and villainy with first of all let's introduce the new testament theologist himself hey
2: Heyo, Villanarri. Where are we starting
0: with the Joe Biden? Villanarri. Villanarri. Yes. Villainery. Thank you That's for having me one. here.
1: For Arkansas Rednecks,
0: we're going to use true. a lot of strategery too.
2: Uh, we're big fans of latent, latent flowers here. Who's late? Apparently.
1: So, no, okay. he he was last week's guest. You're this week's guest. He's acting like a reprobate.
2: <laughs> Baptist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Proper Baptist. Baptist.
0: All right, Pritchett, today it says on the thumbnail for everyone something about razor wire at the border. I understand that young Wes has some uh, influence on that.
1: Yes, actually, but before we get into that, we want to go around the horn. So, Nick, tell everyone who you are and what you do. Uh, well, I'm Nick.
2: I co I host a very, very, very small YouTube channel called New Testament Theologist. I am an interim senior pastor at a little American Baptist church in Los Angeles, uh, at BC Palos Verdes. I am a PhD candidate in New Testament at Ridley College, studying under a certain Michael Byrd, and who I owe chapter two, uh, of the dissertation by Sunday. So we'll see how that, uh, that goes.
1: Yeah, he uh, needs yeah. to come on this show and answer for himself, right? He's I written, Roman com- yeah, he's written a Romans commentary, and he has locked arms with the Thomas Schreiner on poo pooing the influence <laughs> of New Testament commentary commentators who talk about rhetoric and the the impact of first century Greco Roman rhetoric on the New Testament letters, and he's pushing back on people like ben witherington and people like me and people like um, jewett actually um mm-hmm. who takes a he takes a moderating but still more favorable and keener takes a more favorable view to to rhetoric being the canons of rhetoric and greco roman um culture I mean, having we're right into the deep end this culture. week aren't we yeah so he needs to come on and 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 argue with us because I know that you're you're a witherington fan so I
2: mean
1: like that, I, I view whether I view the socio
2: rhetorical stuff and the red rhetoric, rhetoric rhetorical stuff. We'll go with this today. We'll give you the train on that.
3: Rhetorical?
2: One. Rhetorical, yeah. You know, Southern California, that's how we talk. Um gotta represent the left coast. We don't oh, we man. just make up words uh, amongst other things. Uh yeah, rhetoric well, rhetoric like rhetoric it. is fine. It's all well and good until uh it's absolutely irrelevant to the actual theological conversation. So we'll, just a little bit of spice for the rest
1: of us. Okay. So new channel like theologist, go subscribe to his channel. Will Hess, how you doing?
4: I'm good. Uh my name is Will Hess. If you don't know with the Church Split, we are we talk about divisive issues in the church, um unity issues and theology and apologetics and basically whatever we feel like talking about at the time. Uh today I did a live stream on the Alistair Begg uh controversy, although I screwed up my audio on it, but I figured out what it was after the stream, which is of course always helpful. So, uh, you can always, you can check out what we do there. Uh, I work with Brian Bodie, who is my co-host, even though his last name is, looks like it's Bode, It's actually Bodie. They just don't know how to spell. It's fine. It's a Dutch problem,
1: All but right. otherwise doing well. i excited to jump in. Good. MJ Jackson, the urban apologist himself. How you doing?
3: What's up? Good people. I'm happy to be here once again. Happy that we, uh, that we have, um, what well, seems to be my partner in crime on here, uh, Mister uh, New Testament Theologist? So you know, you're breaking my heart with that
1: statement that he has become your partner in crime.
3: You know crime. what? You, you you know why you don't pick up the phone too much <laughs> for me. That's and not. I, It's kind of true, but
0: that's called clapback, Jonathan.
3: That's
1: called
2: 72 unanswered texts, 47 unanswered phone calls, and three scenes from you. So, you know, just in my
1: defense, Braxton is my boss, he is the reason why I have a career. Braxton
2: gets back to me faster than
4: you,
1: and I don't answer. Hold up, so
4: (laughs) hold up, hold up, hold up, Braxton, you text Nick back. I mean, like uh, he's bad. Okay, he's batting a not- one for ten, but I mean that's better than an over. I feel like I'm, I'm about
0: to vomit. I think I need to go to the bathroom real quick. Bye, guys. <laughs> need <a little> <laughs> sugar. So,
4: so let I, me. Do, I've let been. Go ahead. Sorry. sorry. sorry.
3: Go ahead, bro.
4: Oh, no, I'm just gonna say I've been standing next to uh, Braxton while checking his phone before, and <laughs> I could see the amount of unread and unnoticed notifications gave me personal anxiety. Uh, mm. Also, oh, I. I feel like I should rub it into MJ's face that Pritchett answers my text like 100% of the time. So
3: I know he does. <laughs> yeah. Not <laughs>
1: immediately, though. That's the thing that you guys keep leaving out. It's, it's always a delayed response, but it's inevitable. Response.
4: I mean, a well, year's a delay. delay. I mean, that's politics right there. That's
2: a year delay. That's not terrible. <laughs>
4: that's One like, day. All I know is if ever I'm dying, I will never be calling Braxton.
0: So so let me just say that's probably wise. And you know, (laughs) it's also true. I do have a doctorate. I'm a doctor, but not the kind that can help anyone. So, you know, I'm just saying if I need to get
4: a message to my wife and child, I knew what you meant. I can't, I can't, I I can't call you. I love you though. You're right. No, you're right. That's the safer approach. (laughs) Just knowing your friends and not killing them with unspoken expectations. You know what I mean? That's
0: yeah.
3: Let Let MJ
1: finish his sentence.
3: Let me just put this out. Sorry. I, I totally understand that uh Dr. Primetime has uh, new additions to his family. And so probably won't be able to pick up the phone too much. You're gonna be babysitting and doing all those nice things that pawpaws do. I, babysitting I, 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 is not the
1: is doesn't stress it enough. It's it's borderline wanting to kidnap my own grandson because he has the most kissable face. But but I will say this. He is in good hands with my son and my daughter. My
0: dad used to say all babies are ugly. He was like, if it's a baby, it's ugly. I mean, it's just a little wrinkled up piece of flesh. It's,
1: and- that's true <laughs> until you have a grandchild. Then okay. all of a sudden it changes.
4: Why don't we talk about the topic?
0: My kid was
1: show, cute. Guys. Y'all
4: can. Have you seen Nick's kid too? Nick's kid Nux. and my kid are adorable Nux. and always have been. Fight me. My, my kid's an 11 out of 10. Sorry, y'all.
1: Yeah, Nugs and Eliana. Nugs and Eliana. Your kid can't
2: count that high. My (laughs) can't.
1: All right. Enough of that. Last Last week, we did not get to Will's hobby horse. And Will had something he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk about Kevin Young, who is a progressive Christian pastor. He's the progressive prime. No, um, Prime. Uh, you can't, if, y'all can't unsee it now. No, if we were doing a natty or not, like Greg Doucette, I'm natty because I can't talk my doctor, who is Braxton's doctor, into giving me things to make me not natty. Um, I can't talk him into it because he knows why I want it. You're talking about gender affirming care. Gender affirming care, Doctor Schultz. I'll say his name. Will not because he because he He's knows a good why, doctor, and you don't need it. He knows my scheme, but no, I was talking to Tim Stratton. Tim Stratton's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on it too. And so if we were doing a natty or not, he is not the Jonathan Pritchett of progressive Christianity because he, if we were doing a natty or not, like Greg Doucette does, I would have to say not natty. Um, so he's not completely the progressive prime that you're saying he is, but anyway, he made a tweet that really got up. Um, Will Hess's Heine. And, and I kind of I understand why because it's the same kind of thing that we talked about last week with the trying to evangelic guilt. If Drew McLeod is in the audience, that's that's there's a term from the prime lectionary um, that I kind of made up, but it's to use
2: lectionary. It- Are you saying you speak the like holy words, or do you mean lexicon?
1: Like lexicon, but I have a prime lexicon where I invent words, and evangelic guilt is one of those words. Where we, yeah, where we invent a word. And he's one of those who's familiar enough with evangelical culture to use evangelic guilt, use the language of evangelicals to try to guilt them into understanding things. And so he made a tweet that really bugged Will Hess, and it bugged me too, because using evangelic guilt to use that terminology. Is quite annoying to me because it was the same kind of stuff that we talked about last week with, well, if you're a good Christian, you know, if you love your neighbor and that kind of thing, you'll, you'll vote for Trump. You'll vote for Trump. Yeah. No, you won't. I mean, I don't really care if you vote for Trump. I don't care who you vote for, but I'm just saying that's not a reason to vote for it. You know, but anyway, if Braxton has the tweet, we can pull it up now. I do know. Braxton keeps going
4: in and out. Braxton, are you good? You keep going like in and out of the stream here. Are you good?
0: Well, I, I am going to tell you that we are trying to normalize jumping on and off the stream. But I, uh, I have a terrible headache tonight. And so if you see me go away for a minute, it's just so I can close my eyes and regain my sense of humanity. But, fair, um, Jonathan, where, where did you send me these, photos, these tweets?
1: <laughs> I sent them to you in the Facebook Messenger. No, that's where you thought you did. No, I resent them in the face Oh, okay. Yeah, because we we had, of course, I sent them to you last week as well. And we never got to it, but you know what? Yeah, it's the Dr. Kevin M. Young tweet. You Watch cannot it. be pro-life and, and pro razor
2: wire and pro
1: razor wire.
2: Says the guy who probably locks his door at night.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. You know, I mean, we're gonna. You know. But what this is is pro life language is kind of one of those buzzwords for evangelicals,
4: right? Well, then also, it's this. Uh, I don't know if Bryson's ever going to be able to find it, uh, especially with him not having his humanity night with his migraine or headache or whatever. So I could just tangent on for two seconds because there's an obvious categorical issue with this idea of you can ah there it is with this whole you cannot be pro life and pro razor wire. So I think the obvious categorical difference is he would have a point if we were picking up immigrants and throwing them onto the razor wire. Yeah. But since we're not picking up immigrants and throwing them onto the razor wire to kill them, his point remains moot. So there, this is that one of my biggest issues of progressive Christianity is the continual categorical errors made left and right. Like, okay, great. But the, now are you also pro choicer? Because I'm assuming he is as as progressive as he is, then if he is pro-choice, then why is he even trying to evangeli-guilt us into that? Because at that point, it's whoever I declare to be a human, right? If you're unborn, I don't consider you a human. Maybe if you're not part of America, I don't consider you a human. If we can arbitrarily choose when to give someone personhood, which, of course, I disagree with. I think we have it since the moment of conception. But the biggest problem, again, is the fact that, again, we are not picking up immigrants and throwing them onto razor wire, which is what we would be saying, which is what we're doing, yeah. essentially, with abortion, which is we're ripping out children and vacuuming them and throwing them into destruction. So, swing and a miss by Michael DeYoung, and who makes sure that he has doctor at the beginning of his name. But I think he should probably apologize to whoever gave him the ph his doctoral degree or. Or he should probably just go get a new one or a new education because it's just not good. Like the fact that you can get that high of credentials and still be that stupid just blows me away. But anyway.
2: Oh, you you'll yeah. be you'll be pleasantly surprised. Most people the doctorate are some of the dumbest people they ever meet. Okay. I say this to someone who went to seminary and looks around like, Oh yeah. Oh boy, some of these people are gonna be politicians
0: and voting. This is great.
2: Myself included, <laughs> by the way. <laughs>
0: yeah does anybody have any other take other like maybe someone thinks will's completely wrong on that,
1: um, to to that i i don't think that will is wrong but i do think that okay so i'm i'm obviously against abortion but if all right so i'm from arkansas arkansas we had governor mike huckabee for a while before he became a presidential candidate back in what was it, 2012, 2016, whatever. Um, So he was kind of a moderate. His daughter, no way. His his daughter is far right. But Mike Huckabee was kind of a moderate. But back then, the pro-life language, even from the conservatives, went from meaning we're not for abortion to meaning we're for the whole life, we're for... You know, it, it, it matters what happens to children after birth and all of that. And I agree. What we do, you know, what are we going to do for the children who are born that aren't aborted? However, if we are discussing abortion, which is the context of pro-life, I just go ahead and say that I'm pro-birth because my position that we shouldn't slaughter innocent human beings in the womb is a matter of principle, regardless of any policy that we support after a baby has been birthed. So as a polemic, they say, Oh, you're not pro-life. You're pro-birth. Okay, fine. Now I have pro-life positions that can extend beyond birth, um, Things like government programs like WIC, I support, you know, to help people in financial crutches deal with like the the expense of delivering a baby and then providing healthy care with formula and whatever. But that is a completely separate conversation for me than the issue of abortion, which is slaughtering innocent babies in the womb. So when people use the idea of pro birth as a polemic against, you know, well, you're just anti-abortion. Yes, because anything we talk about after birth is irrelevant to the principle that we should not kill human babies in the womb.
4: Well, for me, like when it comes down to that, because you're right um, regarding the like pro birth side of things, because, yeah, we can talk about things afterwards. One of the things that people bring up is how terrible the foster system is. Well, My personal story, if anyone knows me, is I lived in a highly abusive household and my family did foster care and unfortunately a lot of the foster kids were highly abused in my household, but my two younger brothers were adopted through the foster care system into our into our family, uh which was, you know, depending uh what day you asked us, whether or not that was a good idea for like as far as like us when we were kids, because it just made mean the meant the abuse continued. But bottom line is, like, yes, I agree that there are some issues with the programs. We could talk about all that. Uh But bottom line is, is if you killed my two younger brothers and one of them is married with two children and happily married and living a very successful life, that he didn't deserve to live just because these programs are screwed up and he might end up in an abusive home, which he did. um, I think he would probably have some other words to say that he probably deserved to live. So – I just the the program's discussion is a totally different discussion on whether or not I get to rip you limb from limb and kill you as a
1: says. Right. So when people like Kevin DeYoung or Kevin Young, I don't want to confuse him with Kevin DeYoung, but when people like Kevin Young say you cannot be pro-life and pro-razor wire. The issue of abortion in common parlance is that's pro-life language, right? And the issue of how we deal with immigration at the border are two different things. Now, I I just want to say that my house also has boundaries (laughs) and it, it has borders. And so if someone were to illegally trespass the borders of my home. Now that I've joined the ranks of Braxton Hunter and Will Hess and MJ Jackson, and I have actually finally after 47 years. Learned how to use a handgun because I took a course. Um, you grew up. I finally grew up. I yeah, people. I've never shot a gun ever until last Monday. Not even a pellet gun. Well, no, I've shot a BB gun, but no I shot it. All right, you remember those BB guns? I had. They would fire BBs, and then you could put a dart in the in the top part of it and put it in the barrel. Do You know that no. BB gun? Oh, no, well. that's some kind of Arkansas weirdness. Okay. Well, anyway, I fired one of those, but I've never fired a real gun until Monday, and I'm not ashamed to say it. Just guns were not a part of my life, but you know, my son is a police officer. Are you virtue
0: signaling? Are you trying to make us feel? Are you trying to? Are you trying to guilt us right now? The very thing you said not to do because we're because we had shotguns.
1: No, absolutely not. Always been uh, um, for the last twelve years. Now I've showed posts in Trinity Radio Forum of my progression on this issue from a person who said we need reasonable gun restriction. Remember I showed the, the post for yeah, my Facebook yeah, yeah. yeah. So now I'm like, I want a bazooka. Well, right? well, so my, well my position on two a has shifted. Well, the, chat,
0: the chat is still mocking and shaming you. And it yeah, just sounds yeah. like you are self-loathing. So I, I, I do have
3: a few things to say about the whole uh, razor wire thing. Bring it. Uh, n- number one, just from a biblical standpoint, the Bible, um, and unless you think that God in the New Testament is different from God in the, the Old Testament, you, you know, you embrace some type of Marcionite view uh, of God, uh, unless you think that is the case, we have to admit that God does care about the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and, and poor people. Um, and what we see in the Bible, we don't ever see them pitted against each other. Um we 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 don't see that. Now I'm all for nuance and I appreciate that Dr. Pritchett is able to nuance um uh these different categories of vulnerability and no I don't think that uh people should hold the um the vulnerable in the womb hostage just so that they can let people across the border. Uh, no, once again, that's pitting people against, that's pitting the most vulnerable against each other. This is something that politicians do. And I don't have any, too much respect for politicians to begin with. If I had a church, it yeah. wouldn't be allowed. They'd be sitting in the back. Um. So, so we just don't see that. Now, with that being said, I don't have a problem with razor wire, okay, uh, because it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent. My pistol is a deterrent. I do have a couple of pistols. It's a deterrent. So if you don't want to deal with the pistol, don't do don't do nothing crazy. Right. Your home has
1: borders. Yes. So yes. No- you will defend your borders with your pistols.
3: So there is nothing. I don't think that there is anything wrong with razor wire. If you want to get into the country or seek asylum, you need to do it the right way. Thank uh, you. You can't. You, you can't You know, and and as far as the
4: uh, 100 percent, like I I don't think a Christian should be anti-immigration, which I don't think many are. But the whole point is, what's your process of said of such? So
1: we can't forget that the Jesus who is Lord of the world wants people to obey the laws of the land in which they are in unless it violates God's law. So we do have ports of entry. We do have ways for a legal process to apply for asylum, but crossing the borders illegally is not. But that's really not my issue, MJ. My issue is the idea of Christians wanting secure borders, being evangelically guilted, saying you're not for life if you're for razor wire, as if defending borders but still tolerating, um, you know, people breaking the law are like... in. I don't get it because for me, it's like we have a process. It's legal. And yet at the same time, we need to defend our borders because there is a lot of sex trafficking. There is a lot of fentanyl. There is a lot of you know drugs and gun smuggling and all that crime that comes across the border as well. We can't just turn a blind eye to that. So I'm like, why don't we do this in an orderly pop process? God is the God of order, not chaos. We have chaos at the border. We do have a legal remedy for that if the administration would support it hold, hold on
0: hold, hold on a second appreciate yeah. i just have to say mr phil fox here and he says yeah y'all need to learn from my people see what happens when you let them aliens in <laughs> <laughs> I'm
3: sorry. So, so let so let me just say this i will not be manipulated to vote for certain candidates I will not be manipulated to feel bad about certain things that are illogical. I just want, I believe that manipulation is on par with witchcraft. So So now this is a good
0: question for me, MJ, MJ, am I on? Yeah, I'm on. Hey, so like, um,
1: yeah, your headache has not overtaken you.
0: I'm trying. It's not overtaking me, but it's trying. So, so first of all, I'm wondering, is there a disagreement between the two of you, Jonathan and MJ, if so, is it a substantial disagreement? And, um, and, uh, cause what I'm hearing really is, no, we all kind of agree that there's a way to do this the right way coming into the country. And, and ideally that's what we want. But MJ wants to caution that, well, hey, if we're going to have a biblical perspective on this, there should, at the very least, we should be aware that people are using manipulation, perhaps on both sides in a situation like this. Is, is that, am I, am I hitting the mark here somewhere?
3: I, no, think I yeah. I'm just okay. gonna say I agree with Pritchett uh, in, in principle, um, mm-hmm. but I was just pointing out how nuanced Pritchett is being, and he he knows what I'm getting at. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 well, and, okay. He, you know,
1: we were in Texas, and I know our viewers are so interested in this, but we were in Texas, and of course, I'm I still at this point back in the last. I, I believe it was September I had not fired a gun, not handled a gun or whatever. And of course, MJ's packing because it's Texas, right? Sure. And I just felt like, wow, I need mean, so part of the reason why is not just my son, but it's also people like MJ in my life and Tim Stratton uh, in my life that are like, all right, you need to, you need to get on board with this. but completely separate from that, Um, is this idea that I agree with MJ about the manipulation. That's what I'm talking about with the tweet, because the tweet is Christians are not being biblical if they don't support an open border policy. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a difference between legal immigration and then the kind of immigration that whatever you think of the governor of Texas and the governor of Florida putting people on buses and planes and shipping them all over to sanctuary cities, Whatever you think of that, the fact is the cities in Texas are overwhelmed. So if people are saying we are sanctuary cities and you send immigrants to those cities and then they are becoming overwhelmed and we are not taking care of the people at home, there is a problem with we need to take care of our immediate neighbors. And for me, I, I, I take Jesus as word, Judea our Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the outermost parts of the world, kind of a, in, from, from the center out. Well, we love all of our neighbors, but first we need to take care of the neighbors right in front of our face. And so if we are going overboard, and this is my problem with Southern Baptist missions, anything that if, or, or, or mega churches that will ignore the trailer park down the road from their home, but yet send people halfway you know, across the world to do uh, missions, but you won't speak to anyone five minutes from the church in a car. That is a problem to me. And so this idea about razor wire, forget razor wire, just the idea of securing the border and doing everything in an organized fashion, whether the administration wants to do it or not. God does want everyone to obey the laws of the land unless they contradict his law. And God does want us to take care of those in our immediate presence before we worry about the ends of the earth. And so my, I, my thinking on this goes along with that kind of first Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the outermost parts of the earth. Well, yeah. So, OK, this is I was
0: hoping that we would have a little bit of a fight, but we didn't get a fight out of that. So we'll get there um, one of these days. Yeah, yeah, we'll one of these start days. one if you want one. I mean, Nick was reassuringly shaking his head. No, they're they're in agreement, and and I'm thinking, well, Dad Gummert, I thought we were going to get a little red meat here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm glad we're sure. in unity. The, 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 so, the red meat, um, the red meat will happen when we get to Romans. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 So so that's yeah that's where I was going to kind of direct us uh, to whatever the next topic is, um, so we can head down the hall toward the Book of Romans.
1: Yeah. Well, the next topic is, of course, another progressive pastor, Zach Lambert. And he is a, uh.
0: You took such a bad photo of this screenshot. It won't even show up on this, on the thing. Will it not? Biblical marriage is between one man and one woman. Uh, and then he says, no, it's not. I, I don't want to, I don't want people to be confused and think I'm making these comments. I'll just let you express the information that is on the on the screen rather than use this image that you took with a hewlett-packard from 1994.
1: (laughs) it feels (laughs) clear on my computer it says biblical marriage between a man and a woman in quotes Uh, no it's not biblical marriage in quotes is one man one woman and that woman's slave abraham sarah hagar biblical marriage in quotes again is between one man and two sisters after he worked seven years for each of them referring to Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. Quote-unquote, biblical marriage is between one man, his wives, his master's wives given to him by God, and the wife of the man he murders, David. Biblical marriage is between one man, 700 wives, and 300 concubines, Solomon. Biblical marriage, quote-unquote, is between one man in his 20s and one female child in her teens, Joseph and Mary. The vast majority of marriages depicted in the Bible— or between a man and multiple women, or between a man and a female child who was purchased through dowry. So when Christians talk about marriage today, we should be focused on what is Christ honoring, not what is biblical. And this starts with the confusion of what people mean when they say something is biblical. Because what people mean by something that is biblical is a biblical prescription, not merely a biblical description. So, of course, the Bible talks about polemic. Uh, not polemic. Um, polygamy, like uh, those kind Are of... Are you having a stroke? I'm not that old, 47. Um, That's because he's natty. He, he can't think straight. No, I'm having a latent flowers moment. Yeah. There's a difference. <laughs> so polygamy is discussed in the Bible, right? Um, but that is descriptive of what's going on. But that is not to say that the Bible doesn't have a prescriptive idea about what marriage should be and a definition given on the first page of genesis the first book of the bible
4: well it confuses the is and the ought right like the bible describes what is it's not saying always what ought to be right it's the is ought fallacy it's just typical progressive nonsense in that area right this can can be
2: solved this can be solved in in 15 seconds he wants to talk about Christ honoring. Okay, what does Christ honor? The very first page of the Bible when he says, in the image of God, he made them male and female. Have you not read? So there there we go. We solved the problem. We solved the problem that this guy can't read and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, so.
1: for this reason, the man will leave his mother and father and be cleaved to his wife, right? And, and I, a couple of things. The Bible does have prescription for what biblical marriage should be. And it's between one man and one woman. And also, even in all of his examples, because what he's really trying to get to the heart of of biblical marriage, it's a polemic against people who think one man, one woman for life, same, uh, you know, as opposed to affirming same-sex marriage. Because that's what he really is always tweeting about anyway. You know, it's an affirming thing. But even in all of his examples of polygamy and whatever else, what do they all have in common that doesn't even fit his worldview? There's
4: a man and a woman, sexual difference.
1: They're all men and women marriages. None of them are same-sex attraction. Mm. So even his own, and he, he posted a picture beneath it that illustrated his all, each of his points, but still, none of them affirmed any sort of same-sex relationship. And so I understand we want to be uh, as gracious as possible to our current culture, but you can do that in a way that is not compromising to the culture because the church, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, everyone believe in the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes. yes.
0: The yes. Holy
1: Spirit has not led the majority of the church for the majority of church history wrong on this point. And I don't think that, that even though the Bible describes polygamy and everything else, it doesn't mean that it necessarily approves of it. Well, that's the distinction.
4: Ethan, uh, Ethan with Spartan Theology was in my live stream today as we talked about the whole controversy with Alistair Begg. And, uh, he, he kept making the same point. He kept pointing out like all the, uh, all these unideal biblical marriages as if somehow that gets you to same sex marriages or trans marriages. When I'm like, what all you're proving is that it's a still sexual difference. There's just a lot of sexual difference now. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't get you to the next stage. So yeah, it's again, categorically n- not in line.
1: I am just amused that Braxton keeps changing the description under my name. <laughs> As if I didn't notice that I was the Batman to your Robin and the Luke to your Obi-Wan. No, no, you were the well, Robin to his Batman. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I I just didn't know. I just I just didn't um, think you had noticed yet, and I was going to see how far I could go with it.
4: Now, now, Braxton, when you're calling yourself no. theolo- the theology nerd tamer, are you? What What do you mean? Are you are you the one who's supposed to try to get us to chill out when we're like? He's r- calling us. Roaring? He's
0: calling us lions, dude. Take it as a compliment. Uh, well, it's. It, it, I, I do think that I have that gifting just in general, but I think I've developed it. Uh, by being around Pritchett for so long. It's really specific to him. You see, you know how a Calvinist will say, well, no, to be totally depraved doesn't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be. You could be a whole lot worse, Uh, but God is restraining and he's doing all these things and there could be a whole lot worse evil in the world. Well, with Pritchett, he could be a whole lot worse, but you just don't understand the magic that I've worked on him. So that's what that's all about.
1: Fair enough. I will actually (laughs) accept that criticism. I just want to see how many different takes you could put down there before you run out. That's Oh,
0: he'll keep going. That's the
1: thing. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Right, so next one. Yeah, so I don't think there's much to say. I think we're all in agreement that um, the prescriptive biblical understanding of marriage, is, and by the way, not everyone had multiple wives back in the day, so I don't even know what he's on about with that. But just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that's what people mean by being biblical. What they mean by being biblical is the prescriptive things that are um, what is biblical. They're not using the term to describe everything in the Bible, right? Right. No. They're
4: talking about what God approves of in the yes. Bible.
1: Yes. Not what God tolerates, accepts, or even disapproves of. Now, I, I have
0: a question know? about polygamy for you guys since we're on the subject. And Nick will be keep-
1: happy to answer.
4: I can't keep my one wife happy. I can't imagine anymore. Oh wait, that's not. The, sorry, I'll.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, would most of you agree with the notion that uh, that w- whether or not we take there to be a explicit. Um, restriction in this regard, the, the fact is, it seems that it's not God's ideal. It's not the type of, or the, the, uh, format of relationship that is pointed to by even Jesus and that sort of thing. Um, is that, is that kind of how we, we, you guys would approach that? Say so yeah, it's not, maybe it's not outright restricted, uh, but, or, or forbidden, but, uh, you know, the, the truth is every time we see it happening, it's, it causes a lot of chaos. Speak to that yeah. for a second.
4: Um, I mean, I talked about this on my stream today a little bit, but that's the Edenic covenant that was given between man and woman and that, you know, they will become one flesh and he will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. That entire Edenic like command and covenant was between one man and one woman, which tells me that that is the created ideal. And that even though certain things might be tolerated and stuff, because also the ancient Near East and the ancient world is much more difficult. So, and a lot of the things that we the. Uh, uh- positives that we have today in society they didn't always have access to so you're talking your children oftentimes are also oftentimes your labor force well how do you create more children you end up marrying more women but also women were more vulnerable because their fathers would die earlier therefore their husbands so there's a lot of these other aspects that are happening at the time but not that it makes it right or that or ideal but also the fact that the ideal was one man and one woman, but also the fact and that it caused a lot of chaos when we did, um, create polygamy, um, amongst the people there. So
0: yes. Yeah. So the, so this is really, I was just kind of getting to the notion that we, that we kind of are all on the same general page in the outlook on this, because my question would be, okay. So you have what is known as in scripture, uh, well, it's come to be known as the leveret law. Uh, you all familiar with the leveret, law or leveret law? Levirate marriage and uh, in scripture, Deuteronomy 25 uh, starting with verse five and following. And the notion is like that, um, that if you wouldn't marry your brother's wife uh, uh, in, in order to, I guess, make sure see in, as we all know, when you're talking about ancient Israel, it's very important that families stay in a certain uh, setup that you have, that the land stays where it's supposed to be and all those sorts of things. And so if a brother dies and this uh this other brother is supposed to marry his wife and he doesn't want to do it there's this even this ceremony that we see show up in the book of Ruth with the sandal and the and and uh, this and thus be done to the man who won't marry his brother's wife and all of that. My question becomes assuming that uh, a brother would be married if he's of a certain age wouldn't this then almost require by Mosaic law that uh, a brother uh, uh, perhaps who's already married take a second wife in order to fulfill this or face a shameful ceremony, minor as it may be. Thoughts?
4: I have thoughts, but I want to keep taking all the air time. <laughs> well, go ahead because nobody else is talking. Okay, uh, so also if you kind of get into it, apparently she was actually, uh, she had the choice of whether or not to even marry the brother first off. So I feel like we need to make sure because she wasn't forced into it. Yeah, she she's had the not choice to.
0: That's a good point. Yeah.
4: Right. So she's not forced to marry her, her brother-in-law. That is an option available to her. And then it would be his moral obligation to take care of her. And the reason for this is again, understanding contextually why because we don't, they didn't have social programs like we have now. It was again, women were more vulnerable back then. So, a single woman who no longer is under her father's roof but and her, loses her husband, a uh, brother would be able to provide her social security uh, sure. to a degree or economic security. But also, for a woman to not have born children, it was actually very shameful back then. Because, and people can hate this all they want, but one of the key ways that women, in particular, contributed to their culture and society. And their people was through childbearing and that was actually a, a woman's a great amount of the woman's worth was in the childbearing process and that's why we see plenty of pictures of when the women were were had a barren womb they were very grieved sure. because they felt like their key reason to be able to even like contribute to the society at all was kind of taken away from them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it might be a command to have two wives. It doesn't, uh, in that situation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that was like, that's the ideal situation that God wanted, but it's also, well, how do we work within the confines of this? That's why I agree with Webb when he deals with like old Testament violence. Um, what Webb also talks about how the law essentially was an improvement of the ideal toward the ideal to continue working toward the highest ideal, working with the people sure. with where they're yeah. at. So I agree with that. Mindset. I, think these are all good.
0: I think these are all good thoughts and I'm glad you brought them out because you actually clarified for maybe there's some people who haven't thought about this much before, but I actually do think it's an interesting thing because we always talk about how uh, we should view polygamy and it was never the ideal and all of that. And, and yet I'm asking the question, is there a situation here where in order for a man to be right with God or do the thing that God most wants him to do, he is required to take, a second wife and therefore be in a polygamous marriage. Not that he was required to, but, but that if he was going to do like what God most wanted. And I think that's an interesting contrast when we're talking with the way we normally talk about it, but I didn't mean to derail the discussion too much. I know Nick has to get out of here in not too, too terribly long. So maybe Jonathan, we should go ahead and jump over to Romans.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last week, we discussed the introductory material. So this week, we're going to get into the epistolary prescript. And given that Romans is Paul's longest letter, it shouldn't surprise us that Romans would have his longest prescript. So um, if somebody wants to, you can go to the next slide. If somebody wants to do the honors, whoever has the best speaking voice, which is obviously not me, would like to read Romans 1, 1 through 7 for our audience. Well, I obviously have the best
0: speaking voice. I would be happy to turn that over to Nick.
2: Paul, a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle or called apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of Mm -hmm. David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God or son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by by resurrection or the resurrection of the dead, through him we have obtained or received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the, the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus
1: Christ. Now, thank you, Nick. Now you missed- I got a question too. Huh? Now Nick, you missed last week and I know there was a million things you were putting in the comments that you wanted to say about the introductory material. So go ahead and speak your mind before we go to the next slide. Choose violence. Uh,
2: about about what specifically? I said a Any, lot of stuff.
1: Anything you think that did not get said that you're desperate for our audience to hear?
4: Uh, well,
3: uh...
4: <laughs> Pandora's box.
2: So, leaving aside two or three things. Oops. Sorry, guys. Oh, God. Sorry, um, guys. Oh, I'm, am I here? Yeah, you're here. <laughs> the headache was taken over. It's all good. Uh, so, two things. One, um, apocalyptic. When it comes to uh, the text of Romans does not begin in Romans chapter 5. It begins with the very first word, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, and moves on from there. Um, so, apocalyptic interpreters of Paul begin with Romans 1, Douglas Campbell even begins with Romans 1, but Douglas Campbell also um, loves Bart a little too much and then runs to Romans 5 to find what he wants and likes. Uh, but most apocalyptic interpreters love Romans 1, and the apocalyptic gospel begins in Romans 1, as we see here. Second,
3: Nick, 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 can I ask you a question real quick? I'm sorry. No, go ahead. So, you, even when you were reading, right, and I think I might know where you're going, but you emphasized the word slave. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me why that's important in terms of apocalyptic?
2: Uh, it, well, oh, good question. Slave is yeah. very simple. Uh, that's what due loss means. It's not servant as if this is an employee. This is someone who's bound to another person. Now, a slave could be through, uh, through yeah, many.
1: Yeah, let's go to the next slide because that's a, that's an important topic.
3: Uh, that we want to discuss tonight. Uh, oh. Nick, my, my bad. I didn't mean to interrupt Sullivan. you. Uh, it's okay. Because yeah. I, I, I think that even with the cosmic element in terms of slavery, but go ahead.
2: So um, slaves could be, uh, you could be a slave for many reasons. You could be passed on through inheritance, uh, passed on in the family, and kind of kept in the household, so to speak, that way. You could be a product of war. Uh, You could be an indentured sort of uh, servant for whatever reason, perhaps. I mean, could be if you were a child, uh, you were abandoned and uh, someone picked you up and sold you into slavery or kept you for themselves. Um, What the issue is, is when we turn that word slave and and sanitize it into something like servant, which is what the CSB and other English translations do, The issue becomes, um, not, it's not about humility, although it does, uh, include an element of that. Uh, it's Paul's identification with Jesus Christ because of Jesus Christ's identification with him as Philippians chapter two talks about. Um trashing on Bart and Campbell. Yeah, rewind it a little bit. I actually don't. I didn't even mention Bart, although he can get these hands too. Uh, the issue becomes when you have Jesus Christ being seen as a slave in Philippians 2, the incarnate Christ becoming a slave and being born in human flesh and human likeness, it tells us about the mode of, or it's, it tells us about what how Paul and the authors of scripture view the world, and that is fundamentally apocalyptic, You have principalities and powers. You have demons and angels. You have Satan. You have sin and death. And these are not abstracts. These are not uh, little ideas, or wouldn't it be nice if these are not to be demythologized as Boltmann did back in the forties? These are actual living things in the world, and to be a slave tells you where your allegiance is and who your Caesar or king is. So when Paul says, "I am a slave of Jesus Christ," he is saying Caesar holds no uh, no sway over me. I am not to be identified with Caesar. I am not part of Caesar's regime. I am part of jesus messiah my right. jewish lord who is designated son of god and power over all other things for or i would say cosmic and domestic so already you have a political incarnational theology even within the beginnings of this first sentence
1: i would yeah. argue so let's let's break this down because slavery was a complicated issue in the first century i mean it could mean anything from chattel slavery like we had in the united states in the 17 1800s it could mean you were a, a fodder for the gladiator games. It could mean that you were a city administrator even, or a tutor to a, a wealthy family. Right.
4: But I mean, yeah, because some even or like aristocratic women would even marry into slavery for, because depending on what the social status was, slavery was on different parts.
1: Right. So we can't just say, we can't just issue the word slave and think, okay, whatever your social context is at your time and your place Whatever images that conjure, that may be part of the picture, but it's not the total picture because slavery was indeed kind of anywhere. There were freedmen and freed women in Rome or in various parts of the Roman Empire that were worse off than a lot of slaves were. Sure, so, but you're still
2: a slave. A
1: slave right, that right. owns slaves is still a slave. A
2: free person, you'll notice, it's not a free person; it's freed person. You still carry that with you. You may have more legal rights. You may be able to own property. You may be able to own your own slaves, but you still carry that with you. It's it's almost like a brand. I mean, you even have debates in the Greco-Roman world about whether or not you're allowed to brand your slaves, you know, and all that sort right. of stuff. And so yeah. you've got those issues too. And so I, in my mind, it's like no, a slave is a slave is a slave. Doesn't matter your bank account, doesn't matter this, but it does tell you that there is a hierarchy of slavery. But still, at the end of the day, a slave is a slave that owns slaves is still a slave.
1: Right. And one of the things that Paul could be identifying himself is it could be, like you said, you know, a statement of allegiance. But of course, honor shame is a big deal in the Greco Roman world. So it could be a reversal of the shame associated with the term, because even if a freedman or freed woman was lower on the social status scale, with as far as honor rating goes, uh, with whatever position they had in life. They were, like you said, they were still free. So there was a competition at that at that point. Um, it could be a, an expression of humility, or some of the people in the church at Rome. While we know there were some patrons that were hosting home churches for some of the congregations. It could be Paul identifying with some of the the people at the bottom end of the social stratus.
2: Most of the names mentioned in Romans 16 are slave names, with the exceptions being uh, Junia, who's probably Joanna. Uh, You can see Richard Bauckham or Ben Witherington on that. But most of the the names in Romans 16, the women and men, are slave names or former slave names, which tells you that you didn't have a lot of aristocrats in the early Jewish Christian movement. You had some. There's a few mentioned and they're mentioned by their specific titles. Um, but it tells them that Paul does not view himself as their overlord. He views them essentially as their apostle, which is a different way of thinking. And It also tells us how Paul views power and authority and honor, shame in ways that are different from the Greco-Roman Empire. And so yeah. we need to keep that in mind as well. And course, as,
1: as Nick is well aware of the Greco-Roman literature, probably more so than me, then um, you know that as a statement of either faint humility or genuine humility, uh, citizens of the Roman empire would identify themselves as being slaves to Caesar simply out of simply out of whatever reverence they, they may have for the Caesar cult or whatever. That's
0: a question that I had when you mentioned a moment ago, or Nick did one, the honor shame aspects of this and, you know, we, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, the, the honor shame thing is something that I think the people on this stream are aware of, <clears throat> but I don't know if everybody listening is aware. And so it's just important to note that. And, and, uh, I thank you, Jonathan, for recommending to me the, the De Silva book. Um, good introduction. Yeah. David De Silva, uh, honor, kinship, patronage, and purity, or some variation of those words. But the notion that there are in groups and out groups in the ancient world and it's an honor shame culture very much like some. Uh, Asian countries are where basically what you have in the first century, though, is you have the in groups uh, that are, are, uh, you know, there's honor within that group uh, among the members, but those who, so like the Jews, they, you might have honor doing the Jewish stuff with the Jewish people, but you're shamed in the eyes of the Gentiles. And right. then if you're, and then vice versa. And so the Christians found themselves in this situation where it was like, we're shamed in the eyes of the Jews we're shamed in the eyes of the Greeks. Uh, but Paul wants to emphasize to them, but you have honor in the most important way you possibly can in the eyes of God. And I was wondering if thereby it was a little bit of a polemical jab there at the beginning to say, I'm not a slave to Caesar. I am a slave to Jesus.
2: Well, and that's, and that's where you get into the issue of Paul's political theology. He does not pay. He waits 13 chapters to give any sort of, you know, lip service to the Roman empire. And even then, I'm not sure he actually does that in Romans 13, What you have, specifically him doing here is declaring a different sort of allegiance, utilizing Greco-Roman honor-shame categories, and subverting them by basically placing himself with the resurrected Lord over all creation, the one who is, and I would render it something more like installed son of God in power. And of course, you know, son of God is a term that Greco-Romans very much were aware of, and it has Jewish connotations. And so already you have Paul <laughs> committing a little bit of uh, epistemological treason with these people. And every Roman soldier hearing this opening little salvo is sitting here going like, I'm sorry, who's, who's son of God in power or what? And so it's not necessarily the rhetoric. It's what these words actually denote in a, their political and social context.
1: Now, this warms my heart to hear you say that because I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that. But I know that your uh, supervisor for your Ph.D. program is not <laughs> as hot on. And I'm sorry to drag your personal drama into this. Is not so hot on that thesis as you yourself seem to be tonight.
0: I think it's hilarious before he answers that, that we're on a theology live stream with theology nerds and we're talking about his PhD chair and you're referring to it as drama.
1: Michael Byrd. We love Michael Byrd around here. So it's well, all and, a good and fun. And
0: here, here's the issue is um,
2: you you have Paul basically doing two things. One, I mentioned the political theology. This is a political incarnational theology at work. Second of all, you have an apocalyptic theology that's in opposition to Greco-Roman everything. Um, And so what you have going on is not rhetoric in the sense of, you know, duh-duh-duh. You have a counter-revolutionary theology woven into the substructure of everything, as Paul is saying. And It's not code, it's not magic, it's not mystical little sayings or pithy little one-liners, but when you call yourself a slave of someone, you're associating yourself with a specific person. And let's not forget, there's two to three hundred thousand on estimate, uh, Shadle and others uh, argue that there's two to three hundred thousand slaves in the Roman Empire during this time. That's a massive amount of people, and most of them probably aren't, aren't living their best life. You know, the, the, the purpose-driven life.
0: again. Two hundred
2: to three hundred thousand slaves.
0: Yeah, estimates. what we, well, well, do we know? What the population in general? One well, to
2: two million, depending on how you how you the wow. numbers, but uh, a okay. Wow. A strong, substantial minority of people were slaves or freed persons, depending, well, you know, so already you have that.
1: Okay. From, from, are you talking about in
2: Rome? The Roman kind of the the greater metropolitan area of Rome. Okay. Although the Roman empire, you could probably say, you probably expand it to the Roman empire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I mean, like in Rome estimates, uh, first century range from 250,000 to 500,000, unless you expanded the surrounding territories. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, Estimates also as far as slaves go is I've seen anywhere between one and five to one in ten were slaves. In in the commentary. So uh
2: there, there's a few specialized uh bits of literature that came out. William Shadel uh, and others have done work on that very specifically. Bruce Longnecker has at Baylor University has a really interesting kind of um uh, 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 table in his book, it's called "Remember the Poor," and what yes. he argues is the early Christian movement was comprised, uh, and it actually it's in contradiction to Justin Meggett, who did another, who wrote another book that was uh, very influential, where he argued literally there was a one percent to ninety nine. So basically, Bernie's the Bernie yeah. Sanders construction of the ancient world. The problem yeah. is uh, at subsistence level, basically think blue collar, paycheck to paycheck, barely making it. That's a vast majority of the population, probably anywhere from 85 to 75 percent of the population in the Roman Empire. Yeah. Then you had gradations within that. But basically, you're either at subsistence level beneath. um, That's that's three out of four persons uh, in the Roman Empire.
1: But would you not say that if you were just to do fairness um, on average, you would say, uh, okay, well, on the conservative estimate, we could say one in five in the urban centers and maybe as high as one in 10 in the rural areas.
2: I mean at the end of the day we're we're talking about um we're talking about we're talking about impact of of culture not necessarily you know individual numbers but I mean sure um a vast majority of people did not live like we live today there's there's that but also I mean, you would call it blue collar workers, people that live paycheck to paycheck, work very, very difficult labor. You know, think ports or docks, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, Soldiers in an
1: ancient world.
2: Yeah, that's my point is that Paul basically what I'm getting at is when Paul uses this language, he's not thinking of a of he's not thinking of people. This is what it's communicating is that the people that Paul is writing to are not cosmopolitan. These are not the cream of the crop. There may be a few people that are Phoebe's probably one. Uh, perhaps Andronicus and Junia, depending. Priscilla and Aquila, maybe. But And there's one gentleman who has a very specific Reco-Roman title uh, within Roman 16, but the vast majority of people that he's writing to are not people that are living their best life. These are lower well, income.
1: Barastus, who he also talks about in 1 Corinthians, though. So. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, there, there are people like that, but what I'm getting
2: at is Paul's words would resonate differently because the people he's writing to are people that probably make less than
1: him. Sure. Uh, but you've read your Jewett and you've read your mm-hmm. Longenecker. And so is mm-hmm. wh- what do you make of the uh, of all these options? And it doesn't necessarily have to be exclusive one. As Well, wait a minute. Preacher.
0: Before before he decides on one, I was going to ask <clears throat> MJ mentioned a moment ago when we first started. What was Nick's take on the use of the word slave with apocaly- with in, in with respect to apocalyptic? And I was just wondering if there was something he wanted brought out that we didn't get to bring out
3: okay uh so Nick would know uh exactly where I'm going uh because I think that Paul is also setting up a contrast uh he's contrasting slavery to Rome, which is political but he i but I think he's also contrasting slavery to sin and where sin is a a personified power you also Creed. see this, uh you, you also see this in um in Romans six yeah. Where you are no longer slaves to to sin, where you use your members for uh, unrighteousness or injustice, but you are slaves—you are slaves to God, where you use your members for righteousness and justice. And so, I I would like to just kind of hear what uh, what Nick has to say uh, about that contrast. But also, could it be? Could it? Could we look at this slavery language? Uh, in terms of our vo- or, or new vocation.
2: Yes, uh, I would also add that while the slave language is used predominantly in Romans by Paul, uh, it, it culminates in adoption in Romans 8. And so we forget that you begin as this or you're kind of brought into this, but that's not your final starting. That's not where, that's not the telos of all of this. The telos is adoption. And it's a different way of conceptualizing things. Um, yeah.
1: And- well, yes, but I, I want to say yes, amen, but to that because Paul is no stranger to trying to grab onto any metaphor he can use to communicate a, a bundled set of ideas because you can go back to Jesus where he says, I no longer um, call you my my servants or my slaves, but I call you my friends, you know, that that mm-hmm. of course ties us back into some patronage language, but um referring to people's ally, but at the same time, he, he goes on to say, but remember, a slave is not above his master. And so while there is, yes, in Gospel of John and Romans, children of God, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. Yes, it's a both and because he's trying to communicate more than one idea using more than one metaphor as the singular locus for which we should view ourselves. Well, no, not necessarily. You've got multiple metaphors deployed by Paul, but
2: that doesn't mean he sticks with one or doesn't change one or doesn't grow from one. An example being in Mark ten, you know, if we wanna, you know, use the language that Jesus used, you know, you have people basically coming to him, James and John, you know, the sons of thunder, asking who's gonna be at his right hand, and his left, when he comes in his glory. A political construct, a political concept. They have a wrong idea of what it means to be a messiah. We're not disagreeing right. on that. But yeah. then he says, but then he tells them da 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 but it's not appointed for me to do this, and they got angry, and you know, and then what does he say? And every Jew hearing this, and every Greco Roman or pagan hearing this would know what he said. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. They act as tyrants over them, and their great runs are tyrants or But it is not so to be with you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great must me must be your servant, slave. I don't know why the NRSV maintains that trash language. And whoever wishes to be first among you, you must be slave of all, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve him to give his life yes. as a ransom yes. for many. And so, yes. no, the, already, I agree have, and, the, and the issue then becomes paul Jesus will use these sorts of metaphors or ideas and then build upon them. And yes,
1: build upon them, yes, I'm not disagreeing with that, but I am also saying that we don't want to just simply assume that because we've moved on to adoption language that we should lose because Jesus himself, implicit in that same conversation, not, not with the Thunders of Thunder, but with the with the I no longer call you slaves, but my friends, but then he goes on to remind them, but remember, remember, a slave is not above his master. So what did the disciples take away from that? We have Paul's introduction to this very letter. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, John mm-hmm. in Revelation, which you've wrote part of a commentary for, uh, John, a slave of Jesus Christ. So they still hang on to him, even though they know they've been transformed into kinship language, which is what the these sons, you know, even in the prologue to John, children of God, you know, Paul goes on to talk about Jesus being the firstborn among many brethren. So I'm not saying that it's it's not a, a shift or to, to other metaphors, but I'm saying they they kept hold of all of these metaphors.
2: So they built upon them. the metaphors they didn't just keep them they played with them and built upon them
1: it built upon them yes but they didn't but they did keep them that that's my point and you're trying to undersell in my mind you're trying to undersell the, <laughs> keeping because I'm, I'm saying look
2: all right look it's like okay you look in the past to go yeah i was at one time 15 years old i'm no longer 15 years old i'm 36 years old i the fact that i was 15 years old doesn't whitewash is not whitewashed by anything but it does tell, I now, in light of, as a 36 year old man, I look back at the 15 years old. I go, I no longer think that way. I'm no longer grounded by that. But that point got me here. It's transitional. You don't, you basically, basically, that's a brick in the composition of a house. You remove the brick, the whole thing doesn't make sense, but the whole house is to be in view. You're, you're basically telling us we need to focus on the brick. When I'm saying you have to look at the whole house, which is many bricks, but you need to look at the bigger picture. And that's where I think so, the metaphor so let is. Let me, let me hide
1: here. Yeah, that's Out not picture. what I'm saying. Oh, you're totally saying that. No, I, what I, I'm saying is... I'm giving you a hard time,
2: Pritchard. I know what you're saying. I just disagree with you.
1: Yeah, no, what I'm saying is you have to keep the whole house, though, and you're wanting to say, no, let's go on. Let's just look at the shiny new brick as opposed to all of the bricks that make the house, and I'm saying... Not even hey, close. I, 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 I disagree oh, with, with both you.
3: of you.
4: No, they kept in view the whole house. MJ, MJ's been trying MJ's to... MJ's a smart one. Let's go to MJ. MJ's no, been trying so, to get so, a so, edge lines last 10 minutes. <laughs>
3: So let me let me tell you like this: how I see it and what I think the scripture is describing. Whenever we see Paul use this language of slave, uh, I, I think that's vocational language. I do think the uh, I do think the language of inheritance and adoption and things like that. Um, I think he holds these two paradoxically uh, in, in tension. With, uh, it, it, it's it's a tension that he holds the man. And so in terms of our vocation, in terms of the mission of God, in terms of what we're called to do, yeah, we're slaves. But in terms of being seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, this is something that has already happened because we're in Christ Jesus.
2: And I would only add one word to, I would only add one thing to what you said. It is vocational, but it is primarily Christological. Okay. Philippians 2. Can't forget Philippians 2. And that transforms how we look at slavery.
1: All right. Last point point is we've all, maybe not all of us, have read our Jewett. We've read our Longenecker, (laughs) other commentators. (laughs) I read the Bible. Yeah. There's still, there's still, (laughs) Paul, what about the idea of Paul picking up on the slave servant language as a prophetic identification, Israel corporately, and then you can check out the verse references there, in Psalms and Isaiah, and also individually with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, etc., within Israel's history, with Israel and specific prophets understanding themselves as the servant of Yahweh, could Paul not be playing with that language? And and how do you rank the—I'd like to go around the panel where you see these ideas of Paul as a slave of Jesus and how you rank them in terms of foremost and then— if these other ideas are at play, Paul's allowed to have them, you know, if we're going to take the Thomas Shriner, all of the above approach to the entire book of Romans on every exegetical quibble how how do y'all shake those things out?
0: I'll go first uh of the options that have been provided, I think that uh the because when I'm hearing like what you just said there pritchett i'm I'm looking at this and I'm thinking. Um, would anyone without it, like even in the context, would people understand him to mean all of that with the way that he opened it? Um, I'm just looking at this and I think probably number one for me would be expression of commitment level. Um, and by that I would, I would rephrase it to say that he's, he's explaining his, his, uh, yeah, he's explaining his allegiance. And, and, and I think that falls to the next one down. I think it strikes me after listening to this discussion, and my own thoughts about this, I think it's polemical. And I have been persuaded that, yeah, if if what Nick is telling me is that there has been solid research to indicate that these were mostly what we would consider for the time as blue collar individuals with perhaps some um, dignitaries or wealthy people in the mix, then identifying with some in the church seems like something that would not be missed on you if you were already doing these other two things. So I think those three make the most sense. Oh, and I mean, with that expression of humility, but I don't think all of them. I, I, I don't think uh, the prophetic one uh, tracks with me specifically, and maybe the expression of humility too. I don't know.
2: The expression of the expression of humility makes sense, provided it's grounded christologically. Um, If it's grounded Christologically, then the humility or the, sl- you know, that sort of imagery makes sense as an expression of Christology and identification with Christ as who took on, who was born in human likeness and basically took the form of a slave.
0: Um, because it also wouldn't be missed on you, even in that culture, if you're saying, if you're identifying yourself as a slave, well, of course, that has the, that's, that smacks of humility in, in some respect. And you would notice. Well, that. It, it begs the question of who's your master who's in right. charge
2: and if he says that's slave
0: of the polemical thing down there to me Yep. and if you are a
2: slave of Jesus Christ then then you have to tell people who is Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah depending on how you mm-hmm. want to render that yeah, and which Paul literally does in the next few sentences through prophecy or prophecy through scripture and the prophets and then through a specific title um you know, son of God in power, as 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 I would argue, it's rendered. But that's how I would take it, Christological, and then whatever you want to fit under the realm of Christology, I'm all for.
4: Yeah, all right. I mean, and then so, uh, all right, go ahead, Will. Yeah, this, yeah. Well, I wasn't going to try to get a word edgewise between Nick and uh, Nick and Pritchett. I mean, we saw MJ just struggling to get there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so. Um, I also agree that it, there is a Christological sense here of allegiance. I think the way sometimes people – I love it all the time when I hear people say, like, the, uh, uh, well, you know, the Bible is worried about the kingdom. It's not political but we seem to re- not realize that the language that's directly used seems to be very overtly political, which is like, again, I'm not, I no longer belong to Caesar. I belong to Jesus Christ. So I think there is that, um, that aspect to be taken into account, but also to MJ's point, he builds off of this metaphor further. And the, because he describes, so if, if Jesus Christ is the new master and I am his new slave in a sense, then also who was who was I before I was bought in and, uh, and eventually adopted well, I was a slave to the tyrant of sin, so that's part of the that 's part of the narrative uh, in Romans, and I don 't' think I can really get around that because Romans, I think it's kind of funny how oftentimes Paul uses the language of sin not as uh just a violation of the law once in a while we see him use it in that term, but he also means it oftentimes as a tyrant, something that is evil uh, a corruption of sorts, and it's a tyrant uh that's the big that's the big term term that he uses um so uh that's why like I said, I am always somewhere. All the time between the new perspective on Paul and apocalyptic, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the whole um, prophetic identification as with Israel, I do see why people do come to that conclusion. Especially if you take a thoroughly Jewish Paul view, uh, that that would be more likely what you do. Uh, especially since he talks about the prophets in. Uh, Romans chapter 1, but it is at least my belief when he's referring to the prophets here in chapter 1, he's not referring to that within his slave context here. I think he's more referring to the good news that is established uh, through Israel, which is that God would establish peace and blessing for his people through messiahship. So I think that when he gets into the good news stuff, that's when the more Israel— prophetic background really starts entering in. I don't think it is with a slave terminology as much, if that makes sense. Anyone can correct me if they think I'm wrong. Well,
0: uh, nobody must think you're wrong or they don't care to correct you. So let's take a look here. So
4: I'm just Paul, always right. That's with a problem. You know, I can't help it.
0: The, the, when you are, West, you are. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. So called apostle.
1: A a, a a called apostle, called order. as an apostle. Now, ever since uh I I, I agree with Brian Abassiano, uh, who talks about uh claim language. Uh Nick, I'm sure you've read the article, right? Paul's use of claim, he argues for a technical use. Is Paul talking about a summoning use of um Kletos or or claim language you know uh or or is it, does he it mean named as in dead designated to be an apostle what what is paul saying uh in this introduction and, and how do you understand paul's use of called language general call i mean the those who are theologically minded are used to ideas talked about in especially in soteriology debates um general calls, effectual calls, um, things like that. Um, inward calls, outward calls, you know, there's all kinds of language for that, but William Klein produced an article that I think is worth reading by everyone where he challenges the notion that Paul even means, um, the definition of the the idea of invitation or summoning and says, no, it's for the other, other meaning of the term in, in a technical sense for, uh, naming or to designate as, and if God designates someone as a thing, they are essentially that thing because God has designated them as such. So what what do you make of all this language about called? Do you, you take it as a, a summoning? And of course, all of this changes in light of Zebra Crook's groundbreaking in my mind dissertation on reconceptualizing conversion you know taking a look at paul's conversion and what he says about himself and i've in- never
0: I've never seen a question with that many sentences in it well, yeah, well done. we gotta well preface
1: done. this to, to let everyone know the groundwork for the question. <laughs> was that a question to Nick that was a question for everyone oh
0: I thought that was a question for Nick
3: go ahead and get him, Nick
0: I don't know what you just asked.
1: I'm um, sorry. I wasn't paying
0: attention. What was the how question? How do you
1: see Paul as calling? Do you see it as... Uh, last week we talked about... Do you do you see, think of Paul as using the term as summoning, or do you see it as naming, designating kind of thing?
0: A called apostle. Well, called you can interpret it apostle.
1: called as an apostle. You could interpret the Greek as a called apostle. And does, does Paul's use of that language... Um, Claytos or Kalein, however, you know, whatever cognate you want to use. Nick
3: looked like he's translating on the fly over there. So what you got?
1: Well, of course, he's our expert. So what I'm saying is I'm curious as everyone's thoughts, uh, in case you read William Klein's article on this about he challenges the understanding of called as evoking the idea of a summoning to something as opposed to a naming, like I called him Braxton because that's his name. That that meaning of the word called. No, no, I don't think so.
0: I, I would say no because it's not like this was something that was recognized about him. It was something that was, uh, that happened to him or was ascribed to him.
4: Well, I think he was called, yeah, because he was, like, a, called to the Gentiles, essentially. Like, right. He, that's why he called himself the Apostle of the Gentiles. So I would say he's almost going with a set-apart view, like he was separated and consecrated uh, as the first would, one which, to go which out.
0: That, Yeah, um, set-apart as an apostle, to my mind, would be a synonym for called as an apostle, although set-apart language is explicit there.
4: Right, and uh, would also have a bit more of a Hebraic background, which I am always a fan
1: of. Well, but if you look at that Hebraic background, you're going to see that, I mean, God either names or gives people names to name all sorts of people in the Old Testament, and that's more naming designation than it is this idea of summoning. Now, we're not talking about universally the language, but does Paul use it as a technical term? And I think William Klein argues persuasively that he does use it as, because I would say it was... Because when God designates someone a thing, they become that thing. And so I'm, I am I would argue that the a called apostle would be the proper interpretation here.
0: Well, Hey Butterfly says to be a called apostle, wouldn't one have to be called as an apostle?
1: But isn't the latter kind of a both and there? Yeah, but it, the latter is assumed in the former because if God names you a thing, you are that thing. Right. I mean, just like yeah. in, in, in Isaac, your seed shall be not summoned, but your your seed will be named. Right. Jacob, Israel. Right. He certainly means the designation there. As Yeah, but you don't have a context summoned.
0: unless you have unless you're ready to spill a uh, an, an example where that happens with Paul, because you pointed to the Old Testament and we do have New Testament examples like Wes was just pointing to. About um, where Paul is called to a place or to a people.
4: Yeah, I feel like he was called to a vocation to go reach the Gentiles. I don't think, I don't, I I don't even think we see that like in the text where like God's like, and this is your new name. Like even the Saul Paul, we all know is like a confusion. There was no like Saul to Paul change in his name. It's just a confusion of the language. And so many people have the wrong
1: ideal. So so you're saying it's a summoning, it's a, he's god summoned paul to this task instead of designating him as well he, he likes to set apart thing. he likes, yeah i hurt. was
4: saying uh, so i think he was set apart to do it like so it's like all right now that you know he revealed himself to Damascus road now he is set apart to do this task
1: yeah i mean paul's echoing the language of jeremiah back in galatians 1 15 through 16a he's he's right that's my the language but but that that set apartness that that consecratedness, shall we say, you know, refers to the firstborn, first portion, you know, separated from the law or you're separated for a specific task from the womb like Jeremiah was. Uh, that, But the question is, I mean, it could go either way. And I think that if God names you as something that includes the latter, but I think that what he's saying is, I am a named or slash designated apostle. And the reason why I think that he's, he's using it in that sense is because remember we talked about last week, Paul is not the founder of the church of Rome. And so he's got to up his bona fides as he presents his message to the church of Rome for, you know, any of the myriad of reasons why people think he wrote the letter. So I I lean towards the summon side, but, that's just me, but I, you know, I'm I'm
0: open to is Nick is Nick out now? He's gone. Probably. Yeah, Nick had to bounce.
4: Yeah. Um, okay. I mean, real I quick, don't, real real quick. I don't
0: Spartan st- theology says I got to give Tr credit where credit is due. These theological <clears throat> streams are pretty legit, and I appreciate this uh, them getting this content out there. We appreciate that. And he says, uh, Jail Martin has a lot to say on this. His Galatians commentary has a whole section at the beginning.
1: Yeah.
4: Well, I mean, Spartan theology, appreciate that. Now just stop with your uh, LGBT affirming theology and you'll be fine. Okay. Uh, Amen. Uh, yeah. All so, right.
1: So we're, all yeah, di- I don't, we're all divided. I don't on the,
4: yeah, I don't hate the summoned or named designated to be. Um, I, I, I just like the set apart consecrated ideal. Um, I don't hate the fact that I could even well, see him being summoned to and then consecrated to do the de- I I don't.
1: Well, like I said, the, the set apartness is, is, is what Paul describes of himself in Galatians one fifteen and 16, which is an echo of Jeremiah 1 5. I don't think that that set apartness, uh, has ways either way on the summoning versus named. So I, what, what, what I think I'll, I'll do is. Just if whoever's interested, I'll give you a link to the William Klein article, because I think it's interesting that that there is this discussion in the commentaries, because uh, ever since that article, I think people have had this discussion. And Brian Abashiano, who, if you're not a if you especially if you're an Armenian persuasion, which I know that Nick is a Wesleyan Armenian, uh, but he bounced. But some of us don't really closely identify as Armenian. But I know that he's a big name on that. So uh, we'll go to that. But yeah, send anyways, me the article. Yeah. But so we're all kind of divided on that. We'll we'll put a we'll put a pen in that one and go to the gospel of God because I think that this is a big issue dealing with Romans. It goes back to our discussion last week of what Paul are we talking about. Are we talking about the Lutheran Paul, about the individual trying to is the gospel about Jesus or is the gospel something Jesus did so that we could be justified by faith and that's the heart of the gospel is faith alone grace alone and Christ alone etc and of course Paul talks about the gospel of God and, and you know in Romans Romans 1 he said he's set apart for the gospel of God so in that language what what does what do we think of when we, we think of the gospel cuz uh Longenaker in his commentary points to the the Septuagint usage having to do with the inbreaking of God's reign, uh, whether it's in vengeance or vindication and the proclamation of God's salvation. You can see that on page 58 of Longinacres commentary, if you own it. And then he gives the references. So I want to make sure I give the references, this is, you know, I, I, I'm pulling this from him. And the reason why I chose this, that's kind of a catch all thing. Um, but is this gospel of God countering the gospel of Caesar? Because ever since um, Octavius Augustine, you know uh, Augustus we've been having this language of uh, of the Gospel of the Caesars and is this countering the Imperial cult? Um, we know that the gospel has its source in God himself it concerns his son Jesus with respect to his personal work and we, you know Paul wants to trace that through the Old Testament think about Romans 4, think about Romans 9 through 11 th- those kind of things so the question becomes, is the gospel about Jesus himself, salvation in Jesus, or is the latter just one of several things, meaning salvation in Jesus, one of several things, along with reconciliation, peace, and, and whatever else that result from the
3: gospel? What do we mean by talking about the gospel itself? Well, I, it's I, talking, think, I think Paul defines that for us, right? He, he says, uh, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so we need to go back and look at what was said in the Old Testament. And um, there is a nice book out there called The King Jesus Gospel by, um, golly, McKnight, I think it was. Scott Scott McKnight, McKnight, yeah. All right. And so we need to let the Old Testament um, really, the Old Testament and the prophets really shape how we think about the gospel. Even Amen. Jesus even Jesus, told the religious leaders of his day, he said, you think that you have eternal life and you search the scriptures, but they testify of me. Right? And he hadn't even been on the cross yet. And he wasn't even talking about justification by faith. Uh, even early in the gospel um, where, where there's a call, I think it's in Mark, <laughs> to repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. Jesus had yet to go to the cross. So we don't need to uh, to truncate the gospel and reduce it down to atonement or justification by faith or anything like that. We need to look at what was said, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who who was what? A descendant of David, according to the flesh. And so it says, he says, Jesus Christ. That's Messiah language, a descendant of David, that's Messiah language. So we need to f- f- familiarize ourselves with the Jewish Messiah and look at the mission of the Messiah and see what that is.
0: Yeah, I agree. In fact, I will also recommend a good book. And that book is Empire of the Risen Sun, Volumes 1 and 2 by Steve Gregg, who teaches occasionally for us here at Trinity and to- with whom I just went to Australia. And Jonathan and I and Layton, all three, I think, endorse those books. Yes. And the thesis of that book is that the gospel, if you're taking the new Testament um, material, I know we're talking about Paul here, but if you take the new Testament material uh, in general, what the, the gospel is, the kingdom, that there's a coming kingdom. This satisfies what MJ was talking about with the Messiah. The Messiah was going to bring a kingdom. And in fact, in, uh, If you go to Mark chapter one, this, this is, you know, this is Mark. This is old. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, quote, the time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So I think in understanding that the gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is not just um, these particular aspects that we might put around it uh, that we may point to in, in sermons and stuff. Um, the, the gospel, those are gospels. The gospel in general is the kingdom has come and that's what the Messiah brings.
4: Yeah. And this right. is good. I for... mean, you could summer, go ahead. All right. You can summarize the gospel with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That is kind of the, if you give an action step to the gospel, the ancient, when you go into like Israel, all the language regarding the gospel or the good news, so to speak is bear is actually rooted in the Israel language. So this is actually when people don't also realize that good news was like a, basically an announcement, right? It wasn't just like, a, like, Hey, I have good news for you today. It was this idea of an announcement or a proclamation of sorts. Uh, and actually uh Craig Keener, just to kind of echo what you were saying, I have Keener's commentary pulled up here. It's really easy to navigate in my Kindle, but he says, uh, you know, in the prophets proper, the good news is especially the promise that God would establish peace and blessing for for the people. Paul proclaims that this ancient promise is now being fulfilled in Jesus. And I think it's important that we notice that that's what the whole point of the uh, promise is. Like when he gave the first Abrahamic covenant was that, so that the peace would come through Israel. Uh, And the prophets associated their good news of Israel's restoration with the coming and promise David a king and the hope of resurrection, which is all that. Is what we see culminate in Jesus Christ, which is, I think, why a lot of times Christians say the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. Other people say it's sola fide, but really the, the gospel is the coming of the kingdom. And I do want to make sure I mention that this also tears and uh, punches a hole kind of through dispensational theology. Uh, someone can come catch these hands if they want to, uh, to steal <laughs> Nick's term. Uh, but because one of the big things with the dispensational theology, that they teach that Jesus Christ came with the gospel of the kingdom. And when the people rejected Jesus, they therefore rejected the kingdom. Now Paul comes with the gospel of grace. And that's a different type of gospel than what Jesus was bringing. But they rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now the gospel of grace came. Yeah. Uh, and that's not what they were talking about at all. It was, yeah, always, no, king, it was always kingdom language. Well, always. So, And, and you- with
0: that, you can affirm Longenecker's points here. You can affirm... Uh, point number two, you can affirm number three, you can affirm number f- five, uh, but number four is a question, really.
1: Well, here's um, the thing. Uh, apologists are intimately aware of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses three through eight, right? That's one of our early kerygma. That's why you know,
0: if you ask most apologists what the gospel is, they'll say the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Stop right there.
1: But, but they... Yes, but they leave out what Paul doesn't. Death in accordance with what? Scriptures. And the in, scriptures. Or, the script. And what were those at the time he was writing Corinth, the letter to Corinth? What the Old were, Testament. The Old Testament. So the prophets. There's, right. There is something about Jesus that even of the first import the death, burial, and resurrection that is in accordance with the Old Testament. So it is, but even when you talk about just the death, burial and resurrection, what was it about Jesus that made him worthy that his death, burial and resurrection for the sins for, he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, as it says is his life. So I don't think first Corinthians, when people want to highlight that, if you want to take a Sharpie and black out, the, uh, in accordance with the scripture stuff, you can get away from it, the person and work of Jesus, but Paul doesn't exclude that because it is the whole of Jesus that led to his, the culmination of his death, burial, and resurrection that was what made it in accordance with the scriptures. So as long as you have that, you realize that Paul is not giving a truncated gospel, even in first Corinthians 15, three through eight in, in the kerygma. So. I just want to make that clear that this is not a juxtaposition of, well, we're saying this, but Paul said a first import. Well, a first import, Jesus had to live the life that he lived in order to be the worthy lamb that died the death that he did for our sins in accordance with the scriptures.
0: Hey, I don't want to break the flow, but I I do want to say that I see that in the side chat here, Spartan theology and the church split have been going back and forth a little bit. Um, I think that, uh, Spartan theology is an ally, I think to use the terminology that is popular. And, uh, they, there has been some discussion, uh, about a debate or a discussion about it. And I just want to say I will watch that, but I would also be happy to host that if there's any utility in my hosting that discussion. So yeah. anyway, uh, carry on, Jonathan.
3: <gasps> yeah. Uh, go ahead, MJ. No, I'm sorry. We keep going. I was, I was laughing.
1: Oh, OK. Yeah. So I think we're all agreed that the gospel of God, I, I, since the Reformation and the Catholic versus Protestant debates, a lot of focus. I don't even believe that the doctrine of justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Personally, I think Christology is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. I'm kind of with the early church on that. But um, I think because of those debates, we get lost and are at least at at best sidetracked from what Steve Gregg, what um, uh, we we mentioned him earlier, Scott McKnight. What's what's, uh, Matthew Bates?
3: Bates, yeah. Yeah, Bates. Gorman.
1: Yeah, what they want to point to as the Gospels are the Gospel, right? So even though they were written after... Letter, epistles like to the Romans or even Galatians uh, were written. All of that is on board because we see the the traditions of Jesus, even in the letters of Paul. So I, I want to make sure that people don't lose sight of that bigger picture of the gospel and try to truncate it to this idea of justification by faith simply because of the polemics since the Reformation. So that's that's an important point. All right. All right, and we are to the final couple slides here. we're making good time, yeah, getting to verse five we are yeah <laughs> had, what is Do Paul we being suck like? this is what I wanted this is what i I kind of wanted um Nick here for because we have the uh received grace and apostleship, and of course it, it, are these two ideas? Uh, that, that, that really one modifies the other, uh, because grace, you know, I talked about this last night at our Bible study group at One Life Church. Uh, we were talking about patronage, patron client reciprocity, and the, the, the role of grace in that dialogue, how grace is the language of patron client reciprocity. And so, um, grace, We attach a lot of terms to grace—prevenient grace, sovereign grace, doctrines of grace, you know, enabling grace, whatever. But really, it's the language. It's like slavery, like works of the law that we'll be getting into in subsequent chapters of Romans. It's really socioeconomic language, and so um, a, a lot of people in the commentaries, if you read them, are debating whether or not these are when Paul received the grace, is that the grace gift of apostleship, even though he uses Kai, you know, the conjunction? No. Uh,
0: Yes. No, no. He's through him. We received grace and apostleship.
1: I agree. Apostol Stalin is, you know, grace grace
0: and apostleship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is what it sounds like. Grace and apostleship.
1: Do so you think they're two distinct things?
0: Well, they're not distinct in the sense that I mean Paul has been graced, right? His patron has uh has graced him with this uh with salvation, but now also with a call, that's a grace too. But I think that when it I think that when it says in verse 5 through him we receive grace and apostleship, I think it's just the grace and apostleship. So I am what I am because of him. I'm saved. I mean, this is how church people talk today, and I think it probably was very similar in 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 this case. Grace,
4: you know, and apostleship. Yeah, so, I mean, simple yeah. as so that. You're telling me, so you're telling me that grace isn't some weird metaphysical force that mm-hmm. awakens <laughs> that No, and me. since
0: Pritchett, and since Pritchett taught, you know, taught some of this stuff to me years ago. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm showing honor to him for having taught me these (laughs) things about honor, but, uh, but no, you know, like, you know, will, I know that you're asking that rhetorically like, uh, when someone goes, if I didn't have grain for my crops or whatever, or I didn't have seed for my crops. And I went to this patron and I, um, told him my situation, he might grace me with this. And I think this is, I've been convinced this is the biblical understanding. He graces me with what I need that I could never get for myself. And I still can't earn it, and I won't be earning it with what I do next. But the the honorific response, or that's not the right way to say that. But the no, the that is the
1: correct way to say it. The,
0: the honorable response yes. to that would is to praise his name publicly. Now, that's not required, but if you don't do it, that's shame, and that tracks so well with Christianity the the way. Uh, when, I, when I understood this, it's kind of like all the things that I've been taught all my life about Christianity, about how it's supposed to be kind of clicked into place for me because it's like, well, what do you mean? I can't earn it, but I have to do this and you know that sort of thing. No, you, you can't earn it. You won't earn it. And the reason you praise his name publicly is not to earn it. That's absurd. It's just if you don't do that, well, that's shameful, right? You've and dishonored
4: makes- the person who acted favorably toward you and did right. something for you that you could not have done on your own.
1: Yes, which is the definition of grace. Not necessarily unmerited favor, though. As sinners, we all have are are un. We're all receiving grace that is unmerited, you know, demerited. But you're say. saying, in
0: principle, it could be merited in other cases, right? But
1: but not this because in the economic well, way, yeah, in the uh, well, economic in way, patrons can can grace for what can can offer favor, benefaction, whatever grounds they they choose. But one of the things that you find in the Greco-Roman literature, like Seneca, for example, Seneca talks about, you know, it's important for patrons to give as the gods give, which is mainly to a bunch of ingrates. And if you read Romans one eighteen through 3.20, you know, and starting in verse 10, where Paul gives that catena of Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, ribbing humanity, both Jews and Gentiles, as a bunch of ingrates, You know, the gods were known to give rain and sunshine to the just and unjust alike. And so patrons were encouraged to give as the gods did, because the highest honor is for a patron to give to the most ungrateful, undeserving. So we can all say, yes, unmerited favor. But the key thing about grace is what Wes just hinted on, which is, (laughs) that you could not secure that position or that status or that favor or that that gift on your own. And that's the key thing that needs to be taken away from grace is that there's nothing about Paul. It is past, And, it, it, you know, he said he was in Philippians 2 blameless, according to the law. But he counts that as rubbish because even that did not merit him, his current role. As the ambassador of Jesus to the Gentiles, so I also when, wanted. Oh, go
4: ahead. Uh, I want to talk about the shell game too that some people play with the word "merited," "unmerited." So um, there is kind of a shell game that you'll notice, especially in more Reformed circles. But when we see here "unmerited," it seems like at one point we mean undeserved, as in unworthy of, in other words, like, we have worm theology, as you so adequately put once, Dr. Pritch, that mankind's nothing but a worm's work. They're completely... There's no value in them there is there there is no value they are worthless um and they don't deserve it but then there's the other definition of like unmerited which would mean like I can't earn it on my own or undeserving. so I think it's also important that we kind of highlight that issue for two seconds and now i, I can just get off that hobby horse, but I've noticed when people use like well, we don't merit our salvation, I'm like what do you mean by merit? do you mean like not deserving as in we're not like that God just condescended our puny little worm brains and he doesn't love us or value us. Or well, do you mean unmerited is un- unable to be earned because I'm still a sinner.
1: Yeah, the, the the interesting thing is that patrons can 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 give grace or benefaction or beneficence or whatever. They can gift whoever they like on whatever basis they like. That's not the, the main issue. But the issue that we need to keep in mind is, like, the highest honor of a patron is to do as as the gods would do or as Yahweh would do, which is give something to the ill-deserving, right? That's the highest honor. And as Paul goes on to explain from Romans one eighteen forward to 3.20, is that we are the—the the short round is in the—yeah, I just cut that. Um, that would be—that would be us, which— Give God the highest honor. But yeah, I mean, the unmerited favor doesn't even carry the day throughout the Bible because God gives uh He resists the proud but gives grace to the who? The humble, right? Right. So that definition cannot be carried. Why why would God give grace to the humble? Now, granted, it is a gift of grace that we have the Holy Spirit to convict us, to humble us, uh, to put us in that position of humility, but still that is that is uh, you know we have to we can't we can resist the holy spirit so you know you take all of that on board and you think well okay so god is going to give more grace to the humble and of course the bible talks about grace upon grace that jesus continues to give to his people it initiates what's called the the circle dance and this is actually in seneca uh, a contemporary writer of paul represented by the three charities. They're pagan goddesses, and and, and uh, Seneca goes into this whole spiel about how they represent grace. Uh, the three graces represent this reciprocity of gift-giving and the display of the ethos of gratitude in return for the gift and all of that. So, yeah, there's no, uh, as DeSilva points out in Honor Patronage, Kinship and Purity, the book that Braxton mentioned earlier, there's no such thing as an isolated uh, incident of grace. It's not an isolated act. It's something that is that is uh, supposed to initiate a relational dynamic that carries on this dance that was in Paul's day represented by the three charities. So, Right on. All so right that what that what that means for us as believers is that when Paul talks about the very next topic on this slide what does he mean by the obedience of faith right um, you know there's a lot of discussion about that um in in, in the Greek um, well
4: obedience of faith um
1: it, well so, there, there's several there's several things that you could translate the <laughs> the hubacon testeos in the Greek as an objective genitive meaning there's an objective thing um, in the noun that is being modified, or you could talk about a subjective, which is personal. It's
0: yeah, it's the it's the obedience that is derived by faith from faith.
1: Well, they uh, the commentators will give you several options. Okay, so. Yeah. It's uh, to make it simple for the viewers uh, in in the sense of the objective genitive is the obedience to the faith, like obedience to the message of faith, like believe in Jesus or or alternatively obedience to God's faithfulness as attested in the gospel. Or number two, the the subjective genitive, which is obedience that bring uh, obedience that faith brings about faith so obedience that is required by faith or it could be the genitive source which is obedience that comes from faith or the obedience that springs from the faith or the adjectival yeah. means means the obedience part modifies the faithfulness so it means like um faithful obedience or you could reverse the two and say believing obedience something like that or apposition which means exegetical genitive the faith exegetical epi exegetical epi exegetical <laughs> i know but we give our trinity radio viewers a little bit extra that's why they come to the biblical rose gallery to go through the scholarship right yeah faith that manifests itself in obedience i think that's kind of backwards so i go with no. the I go with the adjective of source. Yes. Number three, the obedience that comes from faith.
0: That's what I told you. You didn't even have to do any of that. I told you that one from this job.
3: I know. So like I said, we I want, want to get for extra.
4: If we're going to, sorry, MJ, go ahead. Really look like you're going to talk.
3: No, I, I, I tend to, uh, to lean on uh, Bates' work uh, in this area. Um, I think he wrote a book, Gospel Allegiance wrote another book. It's a paperback. I can't uh, remember the name. But he talks about how Pistis um, was not mere mental assent. Uh, It was not, you know, it's not mere mental assent, but... MJ's about to steal my thunder. I'm going to be quick, but it's an embodied allegiance. But uh, Gorman says right here, he says the phrase obedience of faith, he says it's uh, particularly important to Romans. Not only which not only begins, but also ends with a reference to it in uh, Romans 16, 26, as, you know, we, people go through it. Um, he's, he's go, he goes on to say that this is, uh, it's not an either or, but it's a one unified, responsive, obedient faith. It can be translated that way. And so he goes on to say that this unity of faith and obedience is grounded in the fact that the gospel is a divine and royal announcement. So, and, you know, you're commanded to show allegiance to Christ and not allegiance to Caesar. So
4: I love me some Michael Gorman. Um, if you ever read his, uh, uh, new covenant, like a not so new model, the atonement book, I t- highly recommend it. Super good. Um, but the his uh but when it comes to that yeah you're right it's uh, faith is allegiance it uh so uh, uh, you changed my name Braxton what i don't know what you're talking about nice but. spice. but so faith is allegiance and also makes sense uh since we're talking about patron-client relations and this whole allegiance thing and we're, uh, when Nick was here was we talking about slave language and how it's like a proclamation of Jesus Christ as my Lord and not under like Caesar, it makes a whole lot of sense in that faith is being brought up here as the faith of obedience because it's like the faith of allegiance. So if I say I'm allegiant to Christ as my king, then obedience is what follows, right? Or like because it's the obedience that stems from your faith. It is the evidence of this. Yeah. And because of the context,
0: it, 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 it would be allegiance in an obvious way. Like you could all, if it weren't just with a person, because pistis can be used elsewhere. It's like, and tru- like other than, rather than just trust entrust. trust, like, it's not just that I trust that the, that the doc can hold me or whatever, but I'm entrusting myself to it in that way. And the reason I land on that is because, and I guess I could put myself up here for a minute, is because, um, in, um, the letter uh, in uh, to Otto Lycus, it, we have this uh, actual use of pistis with examples. Do you not know that faith is a leading principle in all matters for what husbandman can reap unless he first trusts his seed to the earth or who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts? So they use the word entrust here in the translation. Oh, you're it's triggering Aaron uh, Ra, right? To the boat and the pilot. And what sick person can be healed unless first he trusts himself to the care of the physician, and what art or knowledge can anyone learn unless he first applies and entrusts himself to the teacher? If then the husbandman trusts the earth, the sailor the boat, the sick the physician, will you not place confidence in God even when you hold so many pledges at His hand? So the notion here, it, here we have actually early use of the word pistis with context, and just like you would uh, trust the caps in the ship, you would trust the physician, and you have to use the word, or they do in the translation, entrust to capture this some of the time when you're trusting the message of Jesus and entrusting yourself to him, that, that ipso facto is a situation of allegiance to him.
1: Look at you using ancient data to overturn Aaron Raw's whiny complaints about faith.
4: <laughs> uh, right. I, anything that upsets Aaron Raw makes me happy. Like using
0: the word Aaron instead of Aaron. Hey, Will, I mean, Wes, um, actually I've changed <laughs> your, your, uh, subtitle two or three times. So you'll have to go back and watch the stream. Oh man. Come on, dude.
1: I'm, I'm impressed how you've kept up with my name changes. The, the, uh, parent that, that you didn't it. even see Wayne and Garth, did you? Um, well, yeah, I did, but I didn't want to interrupt, but I just, I, if Braxton
4: would put this amount of effort into his biblical exegesis. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's Calvinism right. Buddhism wouldn't exist anymore. Anyway. I, <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, let's we're all on.
1: agreed <laughs> on the uh obedience that comes from a, a saving faith in Christ. Obedience to Christ is, is the main thing that Paul's stressing here that he kind of forms an inclusio with uh, in uh Romans 16 when he reads, this is that phrase was the only time I believe in Romans that he uses it in any of his letters, so right and i and i I mean I don't even hate the
4: first one you know, obedience to the faith or obedience to the message of faith. I just think that that language can confuse people uh as to like is that workspace salvation is that what you're trying to say, so that's why. It, I usually say it's the obedience that comes from faith, but it's still in, to one degree or other obedience to the message of faith right. or the message of faith is the message of fealty. So I've, one in three, I think would be the ones I usually would go with on that.
1: Yeah. Well, that that's the thing that the reformation debates have kind of clouded this issue because it's really simple, you know, especially when you have a biblical understanding of grace in Paul's context that, that when you have received this gift, Right including the gift of the holy spirit it produces within you the works that god has prepared for us in advance roman uh, i mean ephesians 2 uh, 9 and 10 that we walk in them and so it kind of flattens all that out so that we understand that yeah
4: this and it's um, and to get into like, I mean, just personal testimony. I mean, I know, uh, I have, I have a fairly difficult background. Pritchett, you know, a little bit about it, Braxton, you know, a little bit about it. Um, uh, Pritchett and I had dinner when I first got here and I, uh, it was funny as we were getting to know each other. I just like, was like, well, I'll just air some dirty laundry just so, because we're as just like, Oh, what's your background? So I just told him and it's funny because it's absolutely that, like the more I, I, even in my lived experience all right now, I know I'm getting anecdotal here, not exegetical, but bear with me. But it was one of those things where I'm like, but as my faith, like as my trust in fealty in Christ deepened, so too did my works and actions and desires start flowing differently. Yeah. So uh, and I know it's an anecdotal thing. It's more of a devotional point. But it is something to keep in mind that some Christians, when they first like become Christians, they're like, oh, my goodness, I don't have everything perfect yet. And that's OK, because the, your obedience is going to stem from that faith. But because you have that fealty in your Lord, he's going to be gracious with you and act favorably towards you. And then you will, and in a sense, disciple you and grow you and sanctify you unto those good works that you are, are striving to have.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, I'm, I'm I'm, hoping Nick, I'm curious what he would have thought of this because, yeah, it does form an inclusio with what Paul says later when he returns to the phrase. And Romans is the only letter that he uses the phrase obedience of faith, right? So it's kind of interesting that he picks that language. Of course, you know, verses 3 and 4 um, of, of this passage could be creedal information that he builds upon. Which is why he would use language like that, especially when he comes into chapter two that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, and going into chapter three, the the um, the role of obedience, which chapters twelve through fifteen is is the practical theology of the book of Romans, talking about do this, don't do that. You know, I, I wrote a blog article several years ago on Trinity's blog uh, for the seminary about, you know, for the letter to the Romans that is about justification by faith, even more so than Galatians, there's a lot of do's and don'ts that follow, I counted 96 imperatives in the book of Romans, and most of which follow from chapter, I mean, there's some in the beginning, you know, earlier chapters, but most of which follow from chapter 12 on, 96 imperatives, because it's the, already but not yet tension that we live in that because we have put our faith in jesus the person who also issued commands we are to live our life out like this and if you're going to believe in jesus you're going to do what jesus says and so the tension there is kind of i think relieved when you understand that obeying the gospel in one one sense is it, it is obedience god commands everyone to repent all men everywhere to repent but at the same time, it it is the gift of the spirit. Paul talks about that, that, that builds in us the character to which we live out that obedience in our walk with Christ. All right. Are we done? We're not done yet, are we? Verses six and seven, Paul <laughs> wraps up. The, I mean, there's so much. <laughs> Look, this is a what is called an epistolary prescript, this is just his opening remarks. Yeah, we haven't hello. even gotten to the content
0: yet. Yeah, this
1: is his hello this to is, everybody. Yeah, and and yet it's packed with so much theology. Yeah, and getting it right helps us get right the rest of the letter. And in verses six and seven, you know, there's three things that he refers to the believers, and of course, last week we, we already talked about the in Rome part, but you know believers his audience which we are also his audience his subsequent audience not his original audience but still called of jesus christ okay beloved of god okay think about that that's not gloss over no. we are and called as saints hagias, you know separated sanctified set apart from Right, he uses those three things in this packed little sentence here. Well, actually verses one through seven is one long sentence. You know, it's not quite as long as Paul's longest sentence in Ephesians, but you know, still pretty long. Called of You would know that. Yeah. I know it's just well everyone. Can knows you tell us is.
0: off the top of your head what verse the longest sentence
4: starts in?
1: Uh Ephesians one three all the way, I believe it's through fourteen is one. Long I
4: love sentence. how he says Oh, everyone can do that. Like, sure, dude. Yeah, I. Yeah, I knew that. No, well, that's like right.
1: every every commentary talks about how Paul just kind of. Well, okay, in Ephesians, Paul, even though he's dissing on, I'm not dissing, but he's kind of talking down. Flowery rhetoric in First Corinthians, you know. But he, you know, he, he, he's, but he's more you know, of the Atticized rhetoric as opposed to Asiatic. But when writing to Asia Minor. Paul takes on that Asiatic, flowery, ornamental rhetoric, and he gives this super over the top sentence that just continues on and on and on. Yeah. He's opening to Ephesians because he knows who his audience is. And Paul is the to the Jew, I'm like the Jew, to the Greek, I'm like the Greek guy. And so writing to Asia Minor and to Ephesus, he he goes to this long ornamental, you know uh, sentence that, that like you're
0: doing now. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but look, I want to show you, I want to show you something. Sorry. This covers you up MJ, but Amber says how book start is important. We spent three hours on Isaiah one, one in class this week. There is so much there. Most people just breeze by and I, I don't think I'll be able to find it, but somewhere earlier tonight, Amber said something about a class they've got coming up and how this will be helpful. So that's, you know, that's good to know when we're doing something like this.
4: Well, All I mean, right. So, and when it comes to the rhetoric thing, uh knowing your audience is so important. Now I know Braxton, you got a splitting headache, so you're probably just trying to get get home. <laughs> um, so, uh but just when it comes to like the rhetoric issues, like one of the things that uh you know I got in trouble for when I posted my recent blog on a declaration of war on young apologists was how imprecise I was, because I used a lot of rhetoric. Um and then it's like oh, this is just rhetoric, this isn't the substance. But There is a point in time to know your audience. I was aiming at the normal guy in that. I knew my audience for that. And it is important to know that you know our audience when we are doing a certain thing that we use the proper type of rhetoric to communicate properly. It was kind of part of your point. With the whole thing, yeah, and, right? <laughs> and the whole article was like, learn how to communicate with people because you're going over their heads and talk about things that aren't impacting them on the day to day. You got to learn how to communicate to them properly. Yeah. And we, and so I'll hear people today nowadays, and well, that's just rhetoric. That's just rhetoric. That's not important. That's just rhetoric. And it's like, well, if you don't think rhetoric is an important way to communicate, you are going to be in dire straits, my friend, because if all you do is read facts, you might have facts all day, but it doesn't mean you're communicating. So just a thought when it comes to the fact that Paul uses a ton of rhetoric and rhetoric is important to know how to hone it and how to shape it in order to make your point like – I, I learned, uh, different communication styles when I was pastoring a small country church versus going into a larger city. Uh, I w- also was, um, my, the, my first funeral was a very ethnic funeral and that, uh, that I got to officiate. And that was a totally different situation than my normal. And it did, I realized that when I changed my communication style, it helped communicate to the people better. So we got to learn how to do that. Anyway, just, pragmatic you, end up doing it
0: you do it long enough you end up doing it naturally without even realizing. Yeah, you just it. kind of shift gears as you do it <laughs> my wife has pointed out to me that like if we're talking to someone we don't know like maybe i'm at Lowe's and i'm trying to figure out how to do something not likely but um the, the guy like if the guy has a certain like way that he talks i'll by the end of the conversation i'm talking the way he is and i think it's just like a natural thing you do when you're like that I always right, so said the same talking. thing that's
4: funny
1: Called as
0: saints, grace and peace.
1: Yeah. Grace and peace to you who are all in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses grace twice, right, in in this prescript, right? Because he talks about grace of apostleship. He talks about
0: the the grace he got. Now he's wishing grace on them.
1: Right, which, now, which could just mean, you know, Kyrene is, is a simple greeting that Paul has transformed into just the chorus, grace and peace, combining kind of a hebraism of the shalom peace, you know, with the grace and peace. But yes, we understand God as patron, but I think that language is so permeated, the language of grace, the ethos of grace, as as the uh, patron-client reciprocity thing is so ingrained that Paul doesn't ever need to call God patron. But what he does want to communicate in this opening that I think is important is grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is trying to communicate to them the kinship, the familial connection that believers, the saints, those called of Jesus Christ, the that they have with the creator God as triune. I would say right?
0: we're, we're all like to wish grace. And but
3: peace let and me, peace. let me, let me ask this, uh, because you know, he just pointed out to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. And he goes on, uh, after the called to mention, you know, the, the grace. And we saw that earlier with his apostleship and grace. Um, could this calling as saints also be, uh, you know, not just um, a spiritual "quote unquote" title, but also uh, a vocational term with the with the grace being mentioned there, uh, eliciting some type of uh, response as well? Uh,
1: I think so. Uh, because I think that he's trying to, because, you know, this is packed with theology. Mm-hmm. You know, God stretches all the way back to David, you know, for the for the kingship model. he's You know, that's also however much anti-imperialism you want to invoke in that. The spirit of holiness, which is peculiar for the New Testament, but Paul is using it because it's probably a pre-Pauline confessional statement. Whereas Paul is happy to just talk about the spirit of, or the Holy Spirit, but he, he uses the phrase spirit of holiness. I think that's Paul trying to evoke credibility using a pre-Pauline um, kerygma, so to speak, some sort of uh creedal statement that was in use by Christians that, that the Church of Rome would have used even though they weren't founded by Paul. So Paul's using language that they're familiar with. You have the Trinity there, though, some people talk about the spirit of holiness being pertaining to either A, Christ's divinity, or B, the spirit of holiness that Christ himself had. But I, I really think this is reference. I, I agree with Fee and numerous commentators that take that to be just a pre Pauline statement, but that is the Holy Spirit. So you have all of this theology culminating in the resurrection of the dead of Jesus, and he's that you are called to a vocation that is not just for the ever after, the new heavens and new earth, but it is also, which is heavily impacted in Romans 12 through 15, the here and now vocation that you have that matters in the unity of the body of believers and how you interact with one another, how you interact with the, the lost world that is perishing uh, but for those who are saved, this is how you can behave. This is how you interact. This is our gospel. So, yeah, I think that set-apartness has to include, going back to our earlier discuss- discussion of what the gospel is, because the gospel is not just for something later, but it's for something now, that God has formed a people for himself, for his purposes in the world in preparation for the world to come, if that makes sense.
4: So you're saying when he uses grace twice there, that the second time is not the metaphysical zap to regenerate me.
1: Yeah, it's not, it's not the metaphysical pixie does, but rather, man, <laughs> sounds like
4: something a Pelagian would say.
1: Oh, fair enough. But still, I mean, you know, uh, if you, if you read the ancient, uh, Christian commentary series, they, they actually, you know, Thomas Oden refers to Pelagian and what he had to say along with Augustine and Origen and other church fathers. So it's important hey, I, to listen to all the voices.
4: Hey, I'm with Dr. Bonners on this one. Pelagianism is a myth. Okay. Like,
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> we can get into that when we have a Calvinist guest, but, but, but what, but what I want to communicate here in, in response to MJ is, if you take on board the tension of the already, not yet, we have mm-hmm. we have a vocational role as a kingdom of priests in the now in preparation to for the world, for the sake of the world, the elect or elect for the sake of the unelect, as C.S. Lewis says, to prepare for the world to come and to bring as many... Okay, I saw the Thelma to his Louise. <laughs> Okay, as long as we're both gender swapped, that's fine. Um, but we are God's people for the now in preparation for the not yet. To prepare the world for that and to proclaim his honor by preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom to the world in the now. That is the set-apartness called a saints, and we have peace from God. That's what he's going to unpack with justification, but he's also going to unpack kinship that we have as god is our father and then of course and from our lord jesus christ who is also the firstborn among many brothers and sisters that includes the body of believers the the church
0: well that was fun does anybody else have anything they just have to say mj you've been quiet for a little while you have any comments on all of this summative statements
3: no, nah, this was uh, this was really good. I enjoyed it tonight. Right on, and I'm looking. Yeah, this. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into the next session uh, section of scriptures because our pre- our pre supper friends love to say that this uh, these next few passages prove that everybody already believes. Heck yeah, in God. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna oh, yeah. be fun.
4: Yeah, yes. this is. This is when it gets exciting. I, by the way, I love how we're I'm, we're just owning the West thing. Uh, Doctor Flowers, man. But anyway, uh, I'm just rolling with it at this point. I have. I now we, have wait, an if alias. If he says
0: something, that's the way we call it on this show from now on. If he says repubate, we all say repubate. Hey, check
3: and see if Nick is in the in the. Uh, in the he's not. Now. He was for oh, a minute, right? but he's not oh, okay. there now.
4: Baptist. Um, but <laughs> the. Uh, <laughs> So no, I just, this is my, like what I love, like this is where I like, I, I really get excited about theology and stuff is when we start doing the exegetical stuff and start looking in the background more and more. Uh, it's funny cause I have, uh, I have a few things I'm fa- finalizing in my personal life that I want to start my next, uh, part in upper education. And I'm now going back and forth. I originally wanted to get my going to Christian philosophy and apologetics. But the more I've matured, I guess, in my faith, the more I'm really I have the idea of like, maybe I want to go New Testament background or Old Testament background because I love this sort of thing. So I just think it's really important that we understand what slave means in the context, which we have already talked uh, extensively it is extremely important to also understand that gospel is really connected to the promise of Israel. It's not really just a singular, simple message of just like intellectual belief. Same with faith. So I just think these are really important things that we, he, If you understand that right when the book opens up, the rest of it really starts clicking together and the message that he's trying to communicate to the Roman body. So um, good stuff. And uh, then we already have, as Dr. Pritchett pointed out, the Trinity mentioned right there, um, which is also fantastic. So there's also in this book, there is a lot of actual Christology being talked about. So all this is going to be great stuff. It's going to be fun.
0: All right. Well... Guys, I've enjoyed this. And Dr. Pritchett, why don't you go ahead and take us out?
1: Yes. So next week we're going to be talking Last about, time I
0: think you prayed when you ended.
1: Yes. Uh, heads up next week. We, we won't quite get there. We're going to get into Romans 8-15, through 15, which is... Um, if Nick was here, I'd tease him because uh, his, his project chair, as we call him here at Trinity, uh, Michael Byrd, not so, not so hype. He's kind of like Thomas Schreiner. not so up on the, on the influence of Greco-Roman uh, uh, rhetoric. But it is narratio portion, uh, a narration of themes that will be unpacked throughout the entire book. Before he gets into his propositio, which is, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and then the eighteen and the following that Matthew was hitting about that our presupposition is want to hype on but braxton has a way that i think is very important to temper the presuppositionalist position on that about well
0: well i appreciate you uh teasing that that was about the the most unsexy trailer for the season (laughs) that i've ever heard um but i do appreciate that yeah we'll get into that it's going to be good
1: yeah so all right i'll get can i I,
4: i'll to give you a for next week, we are diving into verses 8 through 15. And we are going to be looking at how presuppositionalists are completely in error. And Braxton Hunter is going to bring the rain. <laughs> yeah. Not not
3: next week. We, no.
0: Yeah. Ah! no, I'm going to do it next week. It's just that nobody will hear it. I'll just be in my bathroom. <laughs>
1: All right. That's weird. Well, I closed this out in prayer last time, so how about Wes closes out in prayer this time?
4: Sounds like a plan. All right, guys, let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, God. We thank you so much for these brothers and those who are watching and those who will watch this. And, God, we just pray that as we are going through your word now that we are thankful that you have given us that. You will help give us wisdom and understanding, and that way we can understand the message that you want to communicate to us and the generations that follow. I pray that you'll help this series to be a blessing to not only ourselves but to others, and I pray that you'll give us wisdom and discretion. We ask you, things in your holy and precious name. Amen.
3: Amen. Amen. Amen.
4: All right, gentlemen,
0: this has been a blast. I don't have any outro music. We'll see you next time on... The Biblical Robes Gallery. Mm.